Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Devraga Personal Finance, episode 123. And in this episode, I will break down the cost of owning my Tesla Model 3 from a running cost perspective. I drive an SR Plus, which is Standard Range Plus, which I bought when it first came out in September 2019. It's almost two years since I bought it, and I've done over 100,000 kilometres in it, and it's been an absolute pleasure and one hell of a ride, and it's still going strong. In this episode, we're going to be talking everything about the purchase price, the cost of electricity, uh, and comparing it to the cost and wear and tear and running costs of an ICE car that I owned previously. We're going to talk about autopilot, tire change costs, the cost of service, some of the best bits of the car, some of the annoying bits of the car, the software, how it works. So I'm going to be breaking down every little thing that I've learned over the last couple of years of owning an electric car. If you haven't listened to my earlier episodes uh, about an EV uh, ownership experience, I do break down the costs back then too, and I talk about them in depth, uh, but we'll cover it a lot more in depth in this episode. The previous episodes uh, to listen to are episode 58, which is called The Economics of Driving an Electric Vehicle, and episode 93, which was 12 months of owning an EV. Now, just to reassure everyone, this will hopefully not sound like a Tesla fanboy podcast. I will try my best not to do that. So I hope I don't ruin it for everyone. Um, And for those of you that are new to the channel, the aim here is to educate about financial literacy. With financial literacy comes empowerment. So you can take your knowledge to your specified advisor and speak at a level that you can understand it. And the third aim is also to be entertained. Now, just a disclaimer, I'm not a financial advisor, I'm not an accountant, I'm not a lawyer or financial planner. Make sure you take any financial decisions you want to make to your appropriate advisors. But if you are stuck on what to do, here are some simple steps to get you on the right track when it comes to saving, investing and personal finance in general. In my humble view, there are five easy steps which anybody could follow. Step one is pay yourself first, take 20% at least of your after-tax income and put it aside because you're the most important person in your life. Step two is you've got to take that money and invest it, ideally into something you understand or want to understand. For me, I understand the stock market and index fund investing, so I just invest in index funds. Step three is when you invest in something, hopefully it produces a dividend or an income, you've got to take that and reinvest it. You don't eat your dividends during your accumulation phase. The power of compounding, if you did this, is phenomenal. Step four is you've got to do it for the long term. For me, long term is not seven, 10, or even 15 years. I'm talking do it for at least 20, 30, if not 40 plus years, and ideally, you do it forever. And step five, my favorite, is you've got to automate 
any of these steps or all of these steps as much as you possibly can. With automation, the more you have it, the less mistakes you're going to make and the more likely you're going to stick to your financial plan. If you do these five simple steps over the long term, you're more likely to have more money than you'll ever need. And remember, money is just a tool. It doesn't bring happiness. Use it as a tool to make your life a little bit better, but most importantly, to make the lives of people around you a lot better. Now, before I go on to the main topic of analyzing my experience driving 100,000 kilometers in my EV, which is a Tesla Model 3 Standard Range Plus, here is a question from Suf, who asks, Hi Dev, what do you do when you have 100% of your mortgage in an offset account? Um, now, this is a really good question. And first of all, congratulations on being in that position. Uh, this tells me effectively you have paid off your home, but the money doesn't belong to the bank, it belongs to you. So it sounds like um, whatever money that Suf owns uh, in their property, they've offset exactly the same amount of money against that in their offset account. Um, and to understand this concept, we need to explain the difference between an offset account and a redraw facility. Many people think it's the same thing, but it's actually not. So what is an offset account? Now, an offset account is basically an everyday bank account, which acts like a savings account, except whatever money is within this account can be used to offset the mortgage amount such that the interest charged is only on the difference. So let's use an example to highlight this point. So Amy has an outstanding mortgage of about $300,000, and she has $50,000 in an offset account which is linked to this mortgage. Amy's interest rate is 3% per annum. This means as long as she has $50,000 in the offset account, Amy will only be charged 3% per annum interest on $250,000 on her mortgage. That is, the $50,000 is offset against her outstanding mortgage debt of $300,000, leaving only $250,000 which is gonna have interest charged on it. So can Amy then withdraw her $50,000, which is an offset account, and use it any time? And the answer is yes, absolutely. That's exactly what it's designed for. It acts just like a savings account. Now this sounds too good to be true, so is there any catches? Um, now there are some things that Amy needs to make sure um, that she understands when using an offset account. The number one thing is, is the loan actually eligible for an offset account? Not all loans are eligible for an offset account. And you may find that a lot of the fixed home loan rates that are offered don't actually have a facility to have an offset account. But a lot of the newer banks and a lot of the big banks are offering offset accounts on all types of interest rates, whether it be variable or fixed rates. Number two is, would all of the $50,000 be counted as offset? Now, this is called a 100% offset account. Uh, some offset accounts only offer a partial offset, such as 50% or 30%, etc. So you need to clarify that. So not all offset accounts are 100%. Number three is, is there an offset limit? For example, if Amy had a mortgage of $300,000 and also had $300,000 in her offset, so that's you know basically paid off a mortgage but kept all the money in the offset, will all of the offset uh, funds be counted towards interest reduction? 
And you need to check that with your bank because some banks don't offer that facility, although most do these days. Number four is, is there any fees for the offset account? Not all offsets are free. Number five is, is there any transaction limits or is it an unlimited transaction limit? So you need to check that because remember the offset account acts as a savings account as well. And number six is usually these offset accounts offer the most liquidity for your money. But if you want to find out more about liquidity from a financial sense, you want to listen to episode 84, where I discuss this concept of liquidity. So, and and just remember that a lot of people ask me this about offset accounts at emergency funds. That's fine. If you've got emergency fund sitting in the offset account and you're not going to touch it, that's fine to have it in the offset account because essentially it's guaranteed returns uh, on that on that money sitting in the emergency uh, account, which also acts as an offset account or an offset account that acts as an emergency fund account, I should say. Now, what would happen if you know you didn't have an offset account? Uh, what about a redrawer account? And how is this different to an offset? Because a lot of people get confused by thinking it's the same thing and it is not the same thing. Now, a redraw facility in your mortgage allows you to pay extra into your home loan and allows you to access your extra repayments. And the key word there is extra repayments, okay? So basically, the key difference here is that your minimum repayments, which you've paid into your home loan, including any interest and principal payments, are not accessible. So that goes away. And the other key difference is that every month as you pay the home loan down, your redraw may in, uh, actually decrease, um, uh, especially if you don't pay extra into the mortgage every single month. So as the loan progresses, your redraw will also reduce such that by the 30-year time frame, your mortgage and redraw will have to equal to zero. That means you've paid off your entire loan amount. Now, this is entirely different to an offset in that with a redraw, you only get to access any extra repayments you've made. And that's the critical difference. And a redraw facility doesn't offer the flexibility that an offset account does. And furthermore, with an offset account, you can use that money as a regular transactional account. And sometimes you can use it perhaps, you know, put towards a deposit for another home um, and you may wish to transition your existing mortgage to an investment-style mortgage while you make the future home as your principal place of residence. And the advantage being that you're not easily converting a non-deductible debt into a deductible debt, um, which uh, you may wish to check with your bank account um, uh, manager or your accountant or a financial advisor after the strategy to make sure that it's suitable for you. Um, and it needs to be done a specific way for you to qualify. So that, that's what an offset account offers compared to a redraw. But they're not the same thing. Now, now that we know the differences, um, what should SUF do after offsetting 100% of their mortgage? Well, this depends on SUF's personal situation. I know the following factors. Um, they're 31 years old. They're a doctor. They own their principal place of residence with 100% fully offset against mortgage. Um, and they have no other debt. So they're in a fantastic position. And the options are basically they can take the money and invest in the stock market. Um, they can use the offset funds as a deposit to buy another property, then make the existing uh, property into an investment loan. So that means the loan then becomes deductible. 
and then move it into the upgraded property. Now, the advantage of this is that you're converting your non-deductible debt into deductible debt. But the disadvantage of this is that there are holding costs and purchasing costs and stamp duty and LMI if you don't have enough deposit. And you need to check that with your financial advisor and your accountant to make sure that's actually possible. Or you could do what's called a core and satellite portfolio, which is basically your core portfolio may have some ETFs or traditional index funds or a selection of stocks. And the satellite portfolio may be some speculative assets like gold or cryptocurrency or individual stocks, etc. Now, the speculative element of this is you must be prepared to lose 100% of your money. Whereas a core element of it is that that is your long term, you know, real investment, so to speak. Um, and if you were to do this, you need to assess your risk tolerance. And you could do maybe 80% core investments or 20% satellite investments. Um, you know, that could be the default starting point. But you need to work it out with your financial advisor what is going to be your split between core and satellite. Um, so literally, so if you have so many options to build wealth for the future and hopefully become financially independent. Uh, and I hope this answers your question and hopefully you will perhaps check in with me perhaps in about five years time to see how things are going. Now, just to be a bit interesting, uh, in addition to Sub's question, I did some basic sums for you. Um, and this is just to prove how simple it can be to build wealth for the long term. Now, I assume that you earn about $8,000 per month and never get a pay raise. So that's after tax. And suppose you never have any super starting now at the age of 31, which is unusual. I suspect you have some super. Supposing you just live in your current property with 100% fully offset mortgage. So basically, um, you don't upgrade. And you took just $2,000 per month and invested it. And that investments um, happen over many asset classes. On an average, you probably return about 8% per annum. And uh, you do that for the next 36 years. And that'll take you to around 67 years of age. Assuming you're still in the same job as a doctor uh, and you simply followed this plan. And let's say you keep expenses um, 2.2%, which is relatively low. If you just did that and never get a pay rise and never did anything else and never had super, you'd have about $4.8 million in your retirement. And that's without trying and without any other assets in your name. And that's not even accounting for your fully owned property that you live in. Now, the biggest myth in finances and investing is you need a lot of money to invest. It's very likely in your career, you're going to earn more, you're going to save more, you're going to buy more investments. So in 37 years, if you don't have at least $5 million in income producing assets, apart from your principal place of residence, the question is, why not? What went wrong? And I really hope perhaps you could check in with me in five years time to see how your investment journey is going. Now, to those that are not in the health sector, that are not doctors, etc., the principles of saving and investing is exactly the same. You got to save, you got to spend less than you earn, you got to save, and you got to invest, and you got to do it forever. And you got to reinvest dividends, and you got to keep your costs low, and you got to try and automate it. That's the fundamentals. It doesn't change what profession you are, and it doesn't change what degree you do. The thing is, if I'm half wrong in this calculation, SILF will still have $2.5 million to their name when they retire in addition to their home. So there is another thing that I haven't really calculated in this calculation, and that is inflation. Wouldn't that kill SILF's retirement in 30, you know, 37 years' time? 
Now, in 37 years' time, assuming 2% inflation every single year for 37 years, it's going to be you know, up and down over many years. But on average, let's assume 2%. And their $4.8 million that they've accumulated in that time is still having a buying power of about $2.5 million, which is still a lot of money. And if I'm half wrong, despite that, uh, that $2.5 million you know, buying power money will still have $1.25 million of buying power money. So I'm really being as conservative as I possibly can. Now, remember, in this situation, Suf doesn't have any other income, earns $8,000 a month for the rest of their career, which is unlikely, um, and never invested anything else, never bought anything else, never invested in their super. So it's a pretty conservative estimate. And hopefully that gives a bit of an idea about how simple and effective investing is for the long term. Um, And, you know, if you think 8% per annum is too much, calculate it for 6% per annum or 7% per annum. I think the people that say, oh, you know, know, $4.8 million is not going to be enough in 37 years time. Well, what's the alternative? The alternative is not having anything. And I think if you think about it like that, then $4.8 million is a lot of money in anyone's account. Um, I hope this helps answer your question, Surf, and hopefully this lays out a roadmap for you in the next 37 years, and congratulations on a fully paid off home, practically. Now to the main topic, what has it been like to own and operate an electric vehicle? Now this is my third episode I've done about my Model 3, and let's dig in deeper into the details. The first question I get asked a lot is, how much did it cost to buy? Now, I purchased mine for $66,000 base price with standard autopilot, which was included in the base price. I did not get full self-driving technology or FSD, and I have not upgraded it since I bought the, bought the car. Uh, and it came under the luxury car tax, which was a bonus. Now, for overseas listeners in Australia, we have LCT, which is luxury car tax, which they slug uh, you on uh, additional to the um, cost of the car. And I think it kicks in around between seventy to 75000 from memory, but I don't know the exact figures. You may need to look it up. And the reason why they had that was really to protect the local car industry, which no longer exists. Australia doesn't manufacture uh, any local cars um, anymore. So uh, the fact that LCT still exists is a bit odd. Um, I'm sure there's deferring opinions about that, but I just think uh, it should not exist. I think uh, to make it more competitive, we need um, cheaper cars in Australia. So uh, it's just an additional tax, which um, it's a bit money grabby, to be honest. But anyway, if you can afford to buy a luxury car, I suppose, um, then uh, the uh, thinking process is you can afford to buy uh, a luxury car with the LCT on it. Now, the purchase process was actually really, really easy. Um, I literally walked into the Chatty store, which is Chadston shopping store here, saw the car, didn't test drive it, and I ordered one online from within the store. Um, I probably sat in the car once um, at the store at the time. Um, And the reason I didn't test drive it was because uh, I'd done a fair bit of research about it prior to purchasing the car. I took handover in September 2019, and it was during the first week of the launch is uh, when I actually took the handover. Um, the waiting period was around three months uh, when it first came online to be bought. 
Um, so there was a bit of a wait to actually get my hands on the car. But a three-month waiting period in 2021 for a car is not unusual. There's huge demand in 2021, but I, I didn't think three months in 2019 was that big of a deal. Um, I bought the, uh, uh, I thought the pricing was actually very aggressive when compared to comparable cars I was researching, which was the Mercedes C-Class and the BMW 3 Series or Audi A4. Uh, factoring in petrol cost, um, it was an absolute no-brainer for me because of the amount of driving that I do. So I thought the purchase price was actually quite competitive. Um, how much do I drive? That's the second question that I get asked a lot. Um, I drive a lot. And that's an understatement. Since purchase of my car, uh, and it hasn't really been two years, but let's assume it's been two years, I've driven 103,298 uh, 103, kilometres thus far at the time of recording this episode. So, you know, that's, that's more than 50,000 a year. Um, so, yeah, I drive a lot. The third question is, the cost of electricity. Now, since I purchased the car, we've switched over to off-peak electricity rates. And the reason for that is the car has scheduled charging. So it makes sense for me to charge after hours. And um, the off-peak rates from our home um, is approximately 15 cents per kilowatt hour. Uh, and the peak rates are, I think, about 30 cents from memory. Uh, but we do have solar power during the day, so um, the peak rates don't really matter because we try and maximise our um, electrical appliance use between 11am and 3pm on most days, especially during spring and summer. Uh, but even in winter, when like today, on a day like today, we had a reasonable amount of sunshine in Melbourne even. Um, there are plenty of options in terms of electricity companies, and in fact, some companies have specific plans for EVs as well and have fixed rate pricing. So unlimited charging for a dollar a day is often some of the companies offering that, and I think that's a pretty good deal. Um, and the total electricity that I've used since I bought my car to charge my Model 3 has been 14,893 kilowatt hours. Um, and therefore the total cost of electricity, because I only charge off peak, is around $2,233.95. Now, that's assuming that I only charge at home, which is actually not true. I do have some free charging in public charge points, which are strategically located at places that I work. On average, I found around 47% of my charging is free, thanks to public charge points, and that is free to me. Uh, obviously, someone else is paying for it, like the council. So my actual cost of running this car on electricity to drive around 103,000 kilometres is $1,116.97. So that's the total cost of running my car based on my charging habits. Now, if I was to compare that to the cost of fuel, um, if I drove my previous relatively fuel-efficient diesel car, um, uh, the way I've calculated this is that the peak performance I would get around 800 kilometers per fuel tank. It was sort of varying between sort of 690 to 800, but I sort of, you know, on average, I sort of said, let's assume the ICE car gets the benefit of the doubt and we'll use 800 kilometers per fuel tank as the average. Um, and the fuel tank capacity was 53 liters and the average fuel price was $1.27 um, uh, over the last sort of two years on average. It's actually been lower and higher over two years because of COVID, etc. But this figure seems reasonable. In fact, um, uh, on a week like this week, Melbourne fuel prices have just skyrocketed due to 
school holidays. It's actually $1.75 in Melbourne, wherever I look, which is insane. Um, so the total cost um, per fuel tank works out to be around $67.31. Um, and given my driving habits, the total number of fuel tanks I would require to achieve 103,000 kilometres was 128.75 full fuel tanks. And therefore, on a total cost basis of fuel alone over the last two years, it would have been $8,666.16. Now, my previous car was European, so it required um, diesel, and that required AdBlue, uh, which basically neutralizes a lot of the pollutants that come out of the diesel. Um, and 10 litres of AdBlue, AdBlue would be about $40, um, so good quality AdBlue. Um, and the total AdBlue that I would have needed is around 107 litres. And the way that I calculated that was every 960 kilometres requires around one litre of AdBlue on average. So the total cost of AdBlue I would have spent had I driven this much was $428 over the two-year period. So the total cost of fuel, including AdBlue, is $9,094. So uh, compare that to the EV total cost was $1,116. This is $9,094 over the two years. Now, since my last couple of episodes, I've had to change my tyres for the Model 3. So the cost of, and, and this is the fifth question that I got, was the cost of tyre change for the Model 3 was around $1,500. Whereas my previous car, the cost of tyre change was around $1,200 on average. Uh, for all four tyres. Uh, I've not counted for the quality of tyres, uh, but basically the Model 3 has very high-end tyres, and these costs include wheel alignment as well. So uh, just, just a bit of a thing about the uh, EVs is that only some tyre fitters will fit tyres for EVs. You need to check. This is because when they jack up the car, they need somewhat special equipment to not damage the uh, battery pack. Uh, so if you join a respective Facebook group for your EV, you will find where your car can be fitted with new tyres. Uh, and the specialty stores like Bridgestone or um, Bob Jane T-Marts, etc., they will have no problems with fitting your EV with new tyres. But if you went to those sort of car service areas where they actually change tyres, um, then you know you want to be a little bit careful about to make sure that they have the right equipment to do it. Um, I think Tesla don't change tires um, for you. I did ask them and they said, no, you just take it to sort of, you know, specialty stores. Um, but that may have changed since I bought my car. Now, the sixth thing I get asked about is the cost of service, right? So the Model 3, the cost of service for me has been zero. Uh, I'm yet to change my air conditioner filter, which is, you know, around 90 bucks if I wanted to change it. Um, so I'm still waiting to do that. Um, and I'll keep using the current filter and, until it kind of tells me to change it or the smell in the car is just unbearable, which at the moment there is no smell. Uh, I took the car to Tesla after $40,000 because I got a, uh, sorry, after 40,000 kilometers, beg your pardon, uh, because I got a bit nervous because I thought, well, do I need to service this car? And they actually said to me, it doesn't need any servicing. So they declined my request to service the car and they said, no, don't waste your money. You don't need anything done. Uh, this kind of surprised me somewhat because I was coming from an ice car where I need to, you know, service my car every ten to twenty thousand kilometres, um, and it kind of felt really odd driving around in a car which doesn't need any service, um, and that's not the norm that I was used to. And I think I've been very lucky with this car that it hasn't really given me much hassle in terms of repairs at all. Um, the previous car, 
I had to service it, um, you know, every, I think every 20,000 kilometers on average, and it was around on average $400 per service. So some of the services would be a lot more expensive, but other services would be a lot more cheaper. And the total cost um, would have been around $2,060 at a minimum, assuming uh, I didn't have to do any repairs on the car. So that's an additional cost saving by driving an EV. And the important distinguishing feature of an EV, uh, remember, is that there is a limited number of moving parts. There are far more moving parts in an ICE car when compared to an EV, and therefore there's far more likelihood that they're going to break down or wear down over time. So the chances of needing a repair or a service is far more likely in an ICE car rather than an electric vehicle. And that is the key differentiator. I think everyone needs to understand that. There are some hidden cost savings um, uh, when you drive an EV as opposed to driving an ICE car, even though you may be paying a little bit of a premium uh, to buy an EV at the start. Although, if you're looking at a competitive pricing model between the Mercedes, Audi, BMW and Tesla, it just makes complete sense to buy the Tesla because it's a better car, but it's also cheaper to buy and run in the long run. The seventh um, uh, question that I get is, is there any cost of a software upgrade? I mean, we all know that with EVs, a lot of these EVs can get what's called over-the-air updates. And uh, my Tesla, uh, the cost of getting software updates is zero. And uh, my previous car had no such concept. A lot of the ICE cars don't get software updates over the air. Um, now, I've opted not to get FSD because I think there's very little application in Australia for it. Um, and I also note that Tesla will be moving to an FSD subscription service, which is hopefully transferable between cars. So personally, I would not recommend paying an additional $10,000 extra for a product which can change in the coming years. I think FSD is in its infancy, I think. It's it's a great party trick with, um, you know, summon feature and all that sort of stuff, but I just didn't see the value add for the purposes of our driving, so I did not get it. Um, so how do software updates work in a Tesla or basically in any EV if you've got the option of having it? Surprisingly, it's similar to your phone or your laptop. Now, the way it works is basically the car tells you when new software is ready to go. You park the car at home. It automatically connects to your Wi-Fi because when you buy it, you set it up and you authorize a download of the new software and you schedule the installation just like uh, you would schedule your software download on your phone or a computer or tablet. And by the morning, voila, it's just uploaded itself and upgraded itself. Um, and it's very easy. It's very simple. And the version of the software is displayed on the car screen and on your phone app. So basically, the next morning when I get into the car, there's a little pop-up banner that comes in the, in the screen. And that tells me all the new features that have been updated, um, you know, new games or, you know, little annoying bug fixes that the car may have had to have. Um, and it's a very neat feature and it's pretty seamless and um, I don't even think about it anymore. It just kind of happens in the background, just like it does with my phone or my laptop. Now, the eighth thing about the car is the charging infrastructure. I get a lot of questions about this. Now, I'm lucky enough to have public charging stations in Melbourne, uh, which is where I live and work. So for me, it's not a problem. I also work in the country, Victoria, where there's heaps of public charge points, uh, particularly Tesla-specific charge points as well. Um, now, my average daily driving is between 180 to 250 kilometers a day. 
and the car doesn't need charging for these types of distances because I get a lot more than that on 100% charge. And I think this whole range anxiety is just totally overrated. Uh, look, just download an app in your phone called PlugShare. It's a free app and you'll see how well connected we are with charging infrastructure in Australia, particularly in the Eastern Seaboard. Then check out North America and Europe on the same app and you'll see a glimpse of how well connected they are. And here's a bit of a hint. They are far better well connected than we are, but I still think um, our charging infrastructure is actually not too bad. And um, this whole notion that charging infrastructure is a huge risk to buying EVs, I think it's just simply BS because 90% of Australians are not going to be driving 250 kilometres per day. So you know, I've literally supercharged my car twice for the fun of it in the two years that I've driven tens of thousands of kilometres per year and I drive a lot. So you know, charging infrastructure, no big deal because most of the charging happens in your own home. Now, the ninth question I get is um, total range. What is it when I bought it and what is it now? Now, the Tesla claims a very high range for the car, which is not true um, because they have these standards, NEDC or some European standards that they use to try and measure the distance the car would travel and it has to be in optimal conditions, weather, etc. Um, and it's kind of like the way I'd explain it is it's a petrol equivalent is when you buy a car and they quote 3.5 litres per 100 kilometres, you know it's BS. But the real world average is more like 6 to 7, kilo, um, six to seven litres per 100 kilometres. It's exactly the same in an EV because when they test it, they test it under optimal conditions. And real life driving is completely different, of course. Uh, for me, the rated range, which is what it shows in the car after full charge at this stage, after 103,000 kilometres, is 355 to 360 kilometres, depending on weather, um, driving style, uh, temperature, etc. When I bought it, it was 384 kilometres. I once managed to rate it at 400 kilometres, but that was a very brief moment. So, um, you know, this is a made-in-USA vehicle. Uh, there is a newer version of the Tesla Model 3 Standard Range Plus, which is made in China, which seems to hold battery range a lot better. Um, and But to be honest, my battery hasn't degraded very much at all, much to my surprise, to be honest, because when I compare it to some of my peers, um, uh, you know, they, they've degraded a little bit more. You probably can expect about 5 to 10% degradation over your entire lifetime of the car use. Um, and it all depends on your charging habits as well. So in my made-in-USA Tesla Model 3, um, it's recommended that you charge between 80 to 90%. You never charge it to 100% all the time. And I charge it to 100% possibly once a month. Um, and that has maintained my battery condition to an optimal grade. But I think the made in China car has a different charging habit schedule. So you need to work out for your EV, uh, whether it be a Tesla or a Hyundai or a Mercedes EQ series, you need to work out what your charging habits would be and you need to really learn about it and study about it. Now, the 10th most thing that I get asked about is my charging habits. And I charge every night um, and I use public charge points. I've used Supercharger, like I said, a whole twice uh, because it's just not needed for me despite me driving a lot of kilometres. Uh, I haven't done long road trips on my Tesla Model 3. I haven't driven to Sydney or Brisbane, etc., but if I really wanted to, I could travel practically anywhere from Adelaide to Brisbane and beyond 
without much hassles because a supercharger network, whether it be Tesla superchargers or EV um, superchargers, um, uh, um, EV networks or ChargeFox, they have superchargers littered across the highways in Australia and freeways. So I don't think it's a big deal. And charging your car is like charging your laptop or your phone. I've never forgotten to charge it, surprisingly, which was one of the things that I was worried about when I first bought the car. Um, I have a wall connector at home, which came with the car, which charges at a single phase power of about 42 kilometers per hour. And basically, you know, it takes about four hours for me to um, charge overnight um, using my off-peak rates. And single phase is around 42 k's per hour. You can actually have a three-phase power unit if you really wanted to, and that charges at 80 kilometers per hour. Now, the wall connector came free of charge when I bought the car, but now I think it's an optional extra, which is a bit disappointing, but I think it's well worth it. I think if you have a, you know, if you have a, if you have an EV, I think you need to have a proprietary charging equipment in your house because it just makes life a lot easier. You don't need to if you're just doing very, very short urban trips. But if you're driving anywhere like what I am, it'd be nice to get that sort of faster charging happening at home rather than having to solely rely on supercharging or public charge networks. Um, now, I don't have a home battery installed because I just didn't think it was worth it from a cost analysis point of view. Um, and we do have solar at home. And during the daytime, I don't charge my car because I'm at work, but um, essentially I we use solar and we try and maximise our um, electricity use between 11am and 3pm when the sun's nice and shining in brighty, uh, brighty Melbourne, um, even in winter. Um, so yeah, so we, we use solar for our daytime use and we have people living in the house all the time. Now, the 11th thing is what is the best thing about the car? Um, so the standard autopilot is, I think, superior in my humble opinion when it compared to other brands. Um, it just works. Uh, in fact, I used it the other day on the Monash Freeway, which is forever under roadworks. Um, uh, it's a bit of a conspiracy going on that they, they, you know, this is why we have lockdowns because they haven't finished the Monash Freeway in Melbourne because it's been under roadworks now for over, I think, two years and they have lines converging and diverging all over the place when doing these roadworks. And the autopilot just seems to handle all that confusion really well. Uh, and they keep changing barriers and changing road paintings all the time. And, and it just, it kind of just works. Um, and the software updates are a bonus for the car. And that's a fantastic feature, uh, which really Tesla pioneered. Uh, and the car continually improves, which means I kind of feel like I'm driving a new car all the time. Now, compared to more expensive brands like Mercedes, Audi, and BMW, the car is actually relatively cheap to buy and relatively cheap to run, and it still turns heads. Um, I see so many Model 3s um, and other EVs on the road, but I drive in the country and it still turns heads, and I still get people coming up to me asking me, oh, so, you know, how much range do you get? How does it work? And they're very intrigued by it, and um, it's really great to hear that people are interested in this sort of technology. And the simplicity of the screen, um, because there is no dashboard, it just makes it easier. Again, you know, you having to take your eyesight off the road to check the speed, it's not an issue if you're using autopilot. Um, it's just not an issue. Uh, for me, voice command just works. Uh, I use it every day for navigation. Uh, I have my favorite destinations plugged in into it, so it remembers where I've been. 
um, and it just talks to my phone. So I just walk up to it and it opens. I don't have a key fob. Um, uh, key fobs are no longer needed. Uh, it does come with a little credit card style key, which you can hold near the door pillar, which is the B door pillar and it opens the car. But I, I just, you know, basically connect it to my iPhone and it just works. Now that it does have a feature called sentry mode, which I think is fantastic. Um, because let's face it, there are so many bad people on the road with bad behavior and it just records automatically if you honk the horn or when you park the car. Um, so, you know, if you're listening to this and you're near a Tesla and you're peering through the window, just be aware that the car automatically records you. Um, so if you try and vandalize it or try and steal something from it, I mean, it, it, it records you in like high definition where, you know, I can pinpoint people's faces on it. Like it's actually pretty incredible and basically records it onto a USB, which I can just detach from the car and I plug it into my uh, laptop and basically upload the video to YouTube if I really wanted to. And if you go to YouTube, there's heaps of Sentry videos that people have been caught scratching the car or trying to steal the car, etc. Um, and if you're really interested, go to YouTube and just search for Tesla Ducks, which is actually my video, which I uploaded in 2019, which initially went a bit viral around the world. And guess what? In true Devraga fashion, I make money from it even to this day. Uh, I get a bit of royalty from that video, uh, which is a bit of passive income. So I guess why not? Yeah. Um, so yeah, those are the best things about the car. Um, the 12th question is, have I ever been locked out? And the answer is yes. Uh, I've actually called the main Tesla number when I got locked out of the car, um, which went to California and they basically remotely unlocked it for me after I cited some basic stats of the car. It was actually done remotely via the internet, which was a little bit freaky, but also very useful. Um, there's an additional cost of owning the car, um, which is the 13th question I get, which is, um, you know, what is the monthly cost for the live traffic updates and the Google satellite maps, etc.? And that's about 10 bucks a month, which, you know, it's not too bad. It's like having a bit of a phone plan. So the car has its own 4G connection, which is unlimited. And you can actually watch YouTube um, in the car, which I often do if I'm sort of taking a break when I'm driving long or having a cup of coffee, etc. Um, you know, it's nice to be able to watch YouTube and just flick it from my phone to the screen. Uh, or sometimes the kids, um, you know, play some games on it as well. Now, uh, the 14th question is, what about the Tesla service? Um, look, my experience has been none because I haven't really serviced my car and I haven't had many problems with the car. In fact, I haven't had any problems with the car. Um, I think overall though, the people in the service center are relatively young and often don't know much about the car, but I do feel a bit sorry for them as a the car is like a tech product. So people have done heaps of research online and it's probably the most scrutinized brand in modern times. So you know, you've got tech geeks going to these service people and asking very, very specific questions. And, you know, they're just like your average car salesman that's trying to do their job. So hopefully their service improves um, in the long run, but it's sort of a little bit wanting at the moment. Um, I'm part of an online Tesla forum, which has various complaints about the Tesla service. Um, so overall, I think Tesla service can improve, especially if you are used to a Mercedes Benz or a BMW or an Audi service level. Um, I don't think Tesla is up to that standard. The car does come with roadside assistance, which is free. Um, and the battery warranty is up to 180,000 kilometers or 80,000 kilometers for the build warranty. Um, and thankfully, thankfully, I haven't had to use it 
Uh, and I wonder what will happen in one or two years time when I might need to change the battery or something like that. But it looks like the battery is actually a-okay for me at the moment. And they have told me that I can drive up to 500,000 kilometers without having significant issues with the battery. And if I'm lucky, I can possibly get a million kilometers out of the car. Um, but I think that's more for newer Teslas, not, not the 2019 builds that were made in America. And I think if I'm not mistaken, I am probably the most driven Model 3 in Australia, um, according to the Tesla forums. I think I've driven the most. Um, I'm up to actually 106,000 at the moment. Um, so I think I've driven the most in my Tesla compared to anyone else. But it's a very, very, very competitive match. Uh, there's several people out there who've just breached 100,000 kilometers in their Model 3. The 15th question is, what is the annoying bits of the car? Well, basic things like seat warmers in the back are an option. I think this is a bit lame for a so-called high-tech, high-end car. The good thing is it can be activated via the app for an upgrade, but I still think it's lame that it's not a standard feature. Uh, the lack of some buttons like climate control, you know, some people say it's a big downside, but it hasn't bothered me too much because you can voice activate it and it works reasonably well. But the buttons I would have liked would have been the headlights. Um, but, you know, over time, I think they're trying to integrate that with your voice function. The wipers, um, if you've known me online, um, uh, Tesla Auto Wiper uh, for Model 3 is the worst I've experienced. Um, you know, my previous Japanese cars did a better job. They seem to just complicate it by trying to reinvent the wheel by using some brand new AR tech. Um, but it's just crap. Um, so Tesla or Elon Musk, if you're listening to this podcast episode, um, can you please fix the auto wipe function of the Model 3? Because it is rubbish. Um, and when you use the heater, um, the battery just, you know, it just uses a lot of power um, in winter when you use the heater for the car. But I think the newer versions have a much more efficient heat pump which reduces this energy usage. So for my car, it's a bit affected, but I think the newer cars, um, the newer made-in-China cars, have a better efficient heat pumps. So that's a good thing. Um, now, for some odd reason, some ICE drivers, particularly you, AMG, or Holden or Ford drivers, um, seem to challenge a drag race at the lights. Um, and, of course, as a good driver who always obeys the rules, I never participate in such drag races. Um, and you also need to be super careful with the acceleration of the car. I just drive the, you know, the cheapest, the slowest Model 3, but it still blitzes most cars on the road. Easy. It is addictive and it can easily land you in trouble when it comes to speeding fines. So as again, as the good citizen that I am, I'm a very careful driver when it comes to speeding um, and I've never had a speeding fine ever with my Tesla Model 3. <coughs> okay, moving on to number 17, the insurance costs um, are very similar compared to my previous ICE car. Uh, I'm paying about $1,400 per month um, and I think it's going to get cheaper this year as the car becomes more and more popular. Surprisingly, for my previous ICE cars, I paid about 1100 bucks for my insurance costs. So I guess hopefully that gives you a bit of a um, 
cost comparison between my um, EV and my previous ICE cars. So how does it compare with the total cost of running this car compared to my previous ICE cars? So the total cost of running my Model 3 SR Plus is $1,116 in electricity costs, $1,500 um, in the cost of tyres. Now with the electricity costs, remember, um, you know, 57% of that is, uh, sorry, 47% of that is actually, um, you know, public charging. So I haven't really included that, but that's okay. Um, $1,500 for the cost of tyres. The cost of service is around $90 for the air conditioning filters, which I'm probably going to change in the future. The insurance cost is $2,800 for the two years. So, you know, therefore on a per year cost, oh, sorry, um, yeah, per, uh, sorry, per two years cost, um, uh, sorry, per two years is around $5,506. Sorry, I got a bit confused there with the numbers, okay? So the total cost of running my previous ICE car for the two years for similar driving habits would have been $9,094, which is fuel on AdBlue, $1,200 for the tyres, $2,060 for the car servicing, which is a real pain, and $2,200 for the insurance. So it would have cost me around $14,554. So which means the total difference in savings and running costs is around $9,048, sorry, $9,048, beg your pardon, uh, for the 21 months. Um, and if I changed the uh, car entirely at home, um, I would have still saved around $7,932 over those 21 months. So that's a huge saving. Coming on to the 19th um, question is, why are these cost savings less than what initially I had calculated in my previous episodes? And I think it's because I've taken into account insurance, tyre cost in this episode, um, which has bridged the gap between the ICE car and EV. But still, it's an approximate saving of about $5,170 per year at least. Um, and I predicted around $6,000 per year uh, before purchase. So it's pretty close. And the actual electricity cost is only around $106 per month to run this car. That is an incredibly cheap cost when compared to filling up my fuel for my previous ICE car. As always, guess where all these savings go? You know, I don't spend it all. I um, goes straight to my investments. So all the savings that I've had from owning this EV goes straight to my investments. Now, the other question, 19 part A, is the uh, big elephant in the room, which is going to happen from tomorrow. What about the Vic EV tax? And now from tomorrow, I will need to pay road usage tax from my EV, uh, which means I need to send Vic Roads a photo of my odometer reading at the start and end of the financial year, I think. I think that's how it's going to work, although I haven't received my letter yet. Uh, they will give me a, a $100 discount for my registration because I drive an EV. And they will charge 2.5 cents for every kilometer that I drive. And in fact, I think if you own a hybrid, you still get slugged 2 cents per kilometer. So this is going to destroy hybrids. So if you're owning a hybrid, it's just disastrous. And hydrogen cars uh, also pay the 2 cents, I think. So in comparison, every litre of fuel that you put into your ICE car has excise charges of up to 42 cents per litre straight to the feds. That's the comparison that I think we need to make. And with that in mind, my road tax over these past two years for driving 103,000 kilometres roughly 
would have been $2,582.45, which is around $1,291.22 per year in extra charges. Add this to the cost of overall ownership, it still means I save around $4,000 per year despite this EV tax. So despite the EV tax, I'm still saving $4,000 per year driving an EV. So what do I think about this EV tax? Look, roads have to be maintained, infrastructure has to be maintained, and the feds and states will lose money over time if everyone shifts to EVs. So it's going to happen. And they're trying to recoup the costs. And I think over time, this sort of tax kind of makes sense. And like all things in life, this penalises people who travel more to work. So if you live in a rural area, you're going to pay more. Um, and, you know, we can get into the whole socioeconomic situation about this, but that's another topic for another episode. But I think it's an okay tax. Um, and the fact that Victoria are doing this this early, though, in the transition to EVs is absolutely horrible, particularly New South Wales are actually incentivising the ownership of EVs. Um, and none of the other states have taken up an EV tax like this. And there's been a huge protest with manufacturers around the globe saying this is the worst EV tax uh, in the world. But realistically, for the average driver, this adds about $375 per year in costs if they drive about um, 15,000 kilometres per year. Um, And remember, they'll save on fuel charges. So You know, if it was me, I would charge a tax on ICE car usage to help transition people to EV quicker. And then when you hit mass transition, that's when you introduce an EV road tax. So yes, you lose a bit of money initially, but then when everyone flicks over, when you get that sort of momentum going, then you can hit them with the EV road tax. And I think this road tax in Victoria, although in the long run, it's probably the way to go, it just delays EV take-ups for new customers based on the perception And it's all just perception that EVs are more expensive to run. But actually, it's not. Even with this new tax, I still save money. So I think if you're in the new market for a car in 2021, you really need to look into an EV. You need to test drive an EV. It doesn't have to be a Tesla. It can be whatever brand you want uh, that's available because it is fast becoming the most cost-effective solution for people when it comes to mobility. And cars will simply be mobility devices, just like phones and communication devices. So um, that's my take on the Victoria EV tax. And the 20th question is, Dev, what is your overall opinion? Look, definitely, I might be a little bit biased here, but it's definitely the best car that I've ever driven. Um, And realistically, I don't think I can envisage myself going back to an ICE car from a financial point of view. It just would not make sense for me to drive an ICE car because it's just too expensive for the amount of driving that I do. And moving forward, um, I think EVs will be the norm. There is nothing stopping from this from happening, um, even with an EV tax. And, you know, I haven't even tapped into the health benefits of driving an EV because there's no exhaust fumes. Um, and, you know, I don't buy an EV. I didn't buy a Tesla because, you know, I'm some sort of a greenie and want to save the planet and all that sort of stuff. I bought it because it just made financial sense. Unless we can make EVs attractive for people to save money, people are not going to buy it. So, um, but there are some health benefits. 
Um, so here's a simple health benefit. When you go pick up your um, child from school, all these cars that are fuming exhaust fumes in the vicinity of a school, it's not healthy for your children to be inhaling these exhaust fumes. It's far healthier that you drive an EV. Um, and look, EVs can't be mainstream unless the bottom line works for the average consumer. And once it does, I think we will look at ICE cars like we look at steam trains now. It'll just be relegated to the past. Now, at the time of recording this episode, the Tesla Model 3 Standard Range Plus has a price reduction of $62,900. The long range is $77,900 and the performance, which is faster than most supercars, is $89,900. And the performance model does 0 to 100 in 3.3 seconds, which is faster than a Mercedes-AMG C63S. And if you've been listening to what Tesla has been doing in the last sort of month or so, they've just released a Tesla Model S Plaid version, which is, I think, 0 to 100 in 1.9 seconds, which is faster than a Bugatti Chiron, but it's about $3 million cheaper. Now, I think that's enough geeking out on this episode, so that's about it, uh, and that's going to be my 100,000-kilometer driving experience with my EV, and hopefully you've enjoyed the cost breakdown, and I think if you're in the market for a new car, consider an EV. It's fun, it's relatively cheap to maintain and drive, and most of all, it might work out financially beneficial and in your favor. Remember to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcast or whatever platform you may be using, or leave a five-star review on all of the platforms. That's even better. And please leave a positive review. And in that theme, here is a review I found on Apple Podcast from Ewan McDonald, who writes, great podcast as someone later to investing. I've just dived into Dev's podcast and I'm finding them very valuable and informative. Thanks, Dev. Uh, this is Ewan McDonald from Perth. So thank you very much for that uh, nice review. Uh, look, get started investing. There is never a time when it's too late. And just a bit of a shout out to my colleague Kumar, who's just bought his Tesla Model 3 Standard Range Plus. So congratulations, Kumar. And he's already texted me how much of a brilliant car it is. And he's going from an ice car all his life to an electric car. And he's um, basically, uh, you know, I think he's he's just going out for drives. He, you, I'm sure he's finding excuses um, to get out for drives. And luckily in Victoria and in Melbourne, we are not in lockdown. Now, the more ratings and reviews you leave, the more people get access to these podcasts. And I do it for free, so please keep them coming. Remember to like Dev Rucker Facebook page, shout out to questions and comments. Share this channel with family and friends by Apple, CastBox, Anchor, Spotify, Google Podcast. And remember, always pay yourself first. Take 20% of your after-tax income and put it aside because you're the most per- most important person, beg your pardon, in your life. And I really hope you enjoyed this 100,000 kilometre update on my EV. This is Devraga Personal Finance, episode 123. And as always, please make sure you stay safe. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 